1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Manlier Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm honored to welcome Jeffrey Sachs to the show today to talk about his new book, Agnon's Tales of the Land of Israel. Jeffrey Sachs is a rabbi, educator, writer, and editor, as well as one of the world's leading experts on the Nobel Prize winner, Israeli writer S.Y. Agnon. Sachs edited the 15 volume series of the annotated English translation of Agnon's writings, published by Toby Press. He's also director of research at the Agnon House in Jerusalem. In addition to all that, he is the founding director of Atid and its web yeshiva.org program. Jeffrey Sachs, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Renee. You've accomplished a great deal in your multifaceted career, Jeffrey. Tell us a little bit about who and what were the significant influences on your own intellectual development.
1: Oh, my. Well, as you pointed out, I, I have a, a very varied uh, CV. Um, and like you know, many people, I, uh, I simultaneously work at a variety of different uh different jobs, all interrelated, all connected to the world of Jewish life and learning and, and literature. Um, for many years, I was a conventional teacher of Torah, of, of Jewish learning. Uh, I'm a rabbi. I studied and graduated from Yeshiva University in, uh, in New York. I taught high school in America. And then uh, in my mid-20s, I came to live here in Israel, and I've taught at a variety of different uh, yeshivot and midrashot and institutions, principally those that are attended by American students that come to learn uh, for a year or two here here in Israel. Uh, and a number of years ago, I became interested in deepening my engagement with the writer Shai Agnon, as you mentioned, Hebrew literature's only Nobel laureate. And, um, even though I had a long connection to reading Agnon, I became something of an, uh, something of an expert in his writing. And I had the opportunity to start teaching, you know, the only way to really become truly expert in anything is to, is to teach it, uh, to become involved at the Agnon house in Jerusalem, which is a very, uh, important and, uh, and worthwhile institution. And I encourage all of our listeners to come and visit us at the Agnon house, uh, those of you here and those on your next visit to Jerusalem, it's the home in which he lived uh, and wrote much of his, his, his work. Um, And today serves as a museum and a cultural site and study center. And through that, I, I became involved in translating Agnon and writing about Agnon and involved in the world of of research. So uh, because I have so many different, uh, different involvements in, Professional involvements. So the question of what were the great influences on me, are, you know, is a is a question that we could you know uh, spend a whole separate uh, web uh, podcast on uh, on the life of uh, Jeffrey Sachs, which you know I assume our readers are less interested in, our listeners are less interested in. Uh, but there were a variety of people in my life, uh, teachers and rabbis and friends, who shaped my. My intellectual world. I should mention that one of them, Rabbi Shalom Karmi of Yeshiva University, served as my as my co-editor of this volume that we're talking about, this collection of essays about Agnon's writing. Uh, this is a, a, a volume that came out of a conference that was held at Yeshiva University, co-sponsored by, by Agnon House in Jerusalem and Yeshiva University's Center for Israel Studies uh, that was held in 2016. Uh, in commemoration of the 50th anniversary of Agnon's uh, Nobel, and uh, Shalom Carmi and I edited the volume uh, that we're that we're talking about today. And uh, among many people, he was uh, one of my uh, one of the great influences on on my life, and along with many other uh, many other figures.
0: How fortunate to be able to work directly with one of the great influences on your life, right? Well, okay, let's turn to the book and the man, Agnon. Who was Shmuel Yosef Agnon? When and where did he live? What distinguished him from his literary contemporaries? Give us a picture of the man and his time. Uh,
1: we're, we're recording this conversation, uh, you know, unfortunately, in the middle of this terrible, tragic, uh, these terrible tragic events that are happening in, in Ukraine, uh, which was Agnon's ancestral home. Of course, when he was born there in 1887, it wasn't Ukraine. Uh, he lived in Galicia, which was the easternmost province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He was born in a little town called Buchach. And in the last few days, I've been inundated with questions from people uh, who are paying attention to the news and know about these atrocities that have been happening in a town, a suburb of Kiev called Bucha. And people are asking me, is this the same town of Agnon? It's, it's not. It's many hundreds of miles away. Agnon's town was in the what today is Western Ukraine, uh, but Buchach was a small town. At The time he was born there at the end of the 19th century, it had about 12,000 residents, 60% of whom were Jewish. It wasn't a little shtetl. Very often, because we are very image poor, uh, people read Agnon's stories of that old world, and they they illustrate the stories from the images in their in their mind in the catalog they keep in their mind, images that they. May be familiar to them from having seen Fiddler on the Roof, which is, of course, a completely different milieu. Shalom Aleichem's world, Fiddler on the Roof, the Tevye stories—that's the pale of Jewish settlement of the Russian Empire, which is separated by a by a a border, a completely different empire. Agnon is born in Galicia, which is part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and uh, he lives there. He grows up in a in a what we would identify as an ultra orthodox uh, environment but that world was relatively speaking uh, quite open and in the home in which he was raised he sent to cheder the traditional jewish schoolhouse and then at a certain point because he's recognized as a very gifted student he's released from cheder he's released from having to go to school and he studies independently in the Beit Midrash, the study hall, and he studies with his father, who was a, a rabbi and a, a learned man, even though he made his living uh, as a merchant. And, uh, but nevertheless, he was exposed to the great works of world literature and Hebrew and Yiddish literature that had come before him. And from a very early age, he sets his sights on becoming an author. He starts publishing his first piece of published writing. I think he's 14 years old, uh, he's, he writes initially first in Yiddish and in Hebrew, and at a certain point, he makes the decision to commit himself to being a Hebrew author, which was a quite unusual choice at that time, because there were many, many, many millions more Yiddish readers than there were Hebrew readers. The flowering and flourishing and and revival uh, of, of Hebrew as a modern language was something that was still In its initial stages, at around the age of 20, he comes on Aliyah to the land of Israel, where he establishes himself very quickly as among the rising stars of this new culture and literature. And even though at that moment, like almost every other young man of the second Aliyah, that wave of immigration in the decade before the first world war he abandoned traditional observance he nevertheless remained very very rooted in the sources of jewish tradition which he mined to craft his modern stories and that really is to a certain degree the it could be said that that's the the main theme of his writing the engagement of modern literature as crafted out of the classical Jewish bookshelf from the Bible and the Midrash and the the Talmud and uh, going up to Hasidic literature, medieval Hebrew literature and poetry, of course, up to Hasidic literature and those that came uh, before him. Uh, he spent a short uh, number of years, rather, in uh, in Germany, uh, which coincided with World War I. Uh, Uh, Until in 1924, he returned to the land of Israel. At this time, he comes with a wife and two children in tow. And he has also at that point returned to traditional observance. So those that are familiar with uh, with images of Agnon, particularly the one that for many, many years was on the 50 shekel note here in uh, here in Israel until the money was recently redesigned. Uh, He's sporting a large black yarmulke uh, and uh, and continued from that point on from midlife on to maintain a, a traditional lifestyle. But he wrote in a wide variety of genres from very short stories to long, sprawling modern novels from kinds of of a neo pietistic tales that the naive reader might think are just, you know, iterations of an old Hasidic folklore, although if they do, they're missing the modernity that Agnon has introduced to it, to hyper-realistic modern novels, to surrealistic, nightmarish works for which he was compared to Franz Kafka, although that was a comparison that he, he bristled at uh, very much. In As I mentioned, in 1966, uh, quite advanced in age. He's awarded the Nobel Prize, the first Israeli uh, to receive a Nobel in any category. And to this day, the only Hebrew author so recognized.
0: Well, he had quite a life Uh, and, and you say he published his first piece at age 14. uh, But he says he wrote his first song at age five out of longing for his father who was away on a business trip tell us about how the theme of longing continued to permeate yeah. his works yeah
1: it's well it's central to his writing longing for a world that's lost longing for home the, the whole nostalgic genre which of course nostalgia it means it, it, not the way that we colloquially use it. You know, like if we if you see an old friend, you know, from from school days, or somebody that you may have gone to summer camp, and you get to talking about uh, about those old stories, and you are laughing, you feel nostalgic. That's not what nostalgia is technically defined. Nostalgia is the pain of knowing you can't go home again, you can't turn back the clock, you can't recapture what was what was what was lost and that is uh, that is a, a thread that runs throughout all of agnon's writings it's the way that he explores the tensions in modern life and jewish life the the gap between the old world and the new between tradition and modernity between a world where faith is kind of baked into existence to a world of doubt and question and even people of faith in the modern world have to earn their faith in ways that could be taken for granted in the pre-modern world these are the great ideas that he's exploring in his in his writing so that story that he tells and like much of his biography i mean everything in his biography from the date of his birth to his name to uh, to uh, i mean almost everything is is, is I don't want to say fictionalized. I often say instead midrashicized. I hope our listeners understand what I, <laughs> what I mean one. by that. Um, mm-hmm. but the, the, the creation, the character of S Y Agnon himself, who serves as a character in many of the stories, who is usually identified as the narrator of the stories, even when he's not a, taking a role within the story. um, that character is the greatest character in all of his writing. the projection the authorial projection of the autobiographical into the into the story is itself a, a, a creation. Um, so he tells this story that his first the first poem, the first song that he composes he was of course a principally a prose writer. Uh, his poetry would not have earned him a a Nobel Prize but his first literary composition, was a kind of rhymed couplet that spontaneously erupts from him out of longing for his father who has gone off traveling for business and he's longing for absent father. Absent father who is both the source of authority, the source of tradition, but also a very important and significant beloved figure. Agnon had a very happy childhood. And even in his fiction, he does not feel compelled to to kind of create a, uh, conflict and disharmony and strife, which is, you know, so common in, in modern literature, uh, modern literary depictions of the family. Uh, you know, think of, uh, you know, think of other authors, think of Philip Roth's work, you know, where there's a, also a very significant pseudo autobiographical layer, uh, in, in his work. And, uh, I think Roth once said that, uh, I mean, you know, besides saying that he he wrote novels in the form of confessions and people confuse them for being confessions in the form of novels. But, you know, the reader could be forgiven when the protagonist of a of a novel set in the Weakwake section of Newark, New Jersey, is named Philip Roth. You might be forgiven for thinking <laughs> that this is autobiographical. Right. But Roth said that you know his his family life was actually much more pleasant than that depicted in his novels. Because if he if he wrote what it was actually like, it'd be quite boring. Authors usually feel the need to inject conflict uh, into the story in order to move a plot. Ognon's depictions of ch- of his childhood are the most uh, uh, harmonious in all of his in all of his writings. They're the least nightmarish of what he's depicting. He had a very happy life, a very happy childhood, and that's depicted very clearly. And he had a very positive and warm uh, relationship with with his parents. He doesn't need to invent conflict. But there's a scene where father, who at this point is his teacher, with whom he sits and studies principally the talmud many hours a day uh who's supportive and i mean Agnon was something of a spoiled child he was the eldest in his family and he was recognized as a as a genius and talented and every every desire he had was uh was 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 granted he also grew up not wealthy but relative to the world at that time he grew up in some privilege and, and comfort And uh, father goes away. And there's an anxiety when father is gone. Now, you don't need to be a scholar of Midrash in order to unpack the symbols that father is the autobiographical father. But it can also be interpreted as a symbol of father who art in heaven and the distance between the Jewish people and the divine and the insecurity that that creates. And while he's... Standing at the handles of the lock of the door, a symbol he's borrowing from the Song of Songs, Al Kapota Manul. He breaks out crying because he knows his father isn't here. And what comes out of his sobs is a, is a rhyme: ata, aba aba, vainochia ahava rabba. How much I love you, Father, Father. With, uh, where are you? Where can you be found, Father? Father, and I love you with a love which is most profound. Uh, and he's he's enchanted by the idea that this kind of spontaneous wailing that comes out of him is itself a literary creation because it because it, it comes out as a rhymed couplet, and it's a kind of portrait of the the initiation of the not even the artist as a young man but the artist as a young boy, who finds solace in creativity. That literary creation itself is a response to suffering. And that becomes a central idea in, in all of his writings until the point where he's standing as, a, as an old man. He's, he's nearing 80 when he receives the Nobel, which is quite a bit older than the average Nobel laureate. Most Nobel laureates, when they receive the, the literature prize, have another novel or two left to write. Agnon was already nearing career's end. At that, from that point on, he, he, he published no more books, although some stories were coming out and there was a lot being done that was published only posthumously. But when he receives the Nobel Prize, he very famously says, "Mitoch on account of the historic catastrophe that Titus of Rome destroyed Jerusalem and banished the Jewish people in 70 CE. 2,000 years ago, I was born in one of the cities of the diaspora, but I always imagined myself as one born in Jerusalem. So you see this long arc of trying to come to terms with longing and loss from the personal, you know, from the, the microcosm of the little boy missing his father, to the Jewish people missing their father in heaven, to the Jewish people missing their home, here being the land of Israel, to the return to the land of Israel, but ever mindful of like this 2,000 year gap in in Jewish life, that's uh that runs throughout and it actually intersects very much with the themes that we explored in in the conference and 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 the book which is his depiction of the land of israel because his depiction and connection to the land of israel is filtered through the nostalgia that he also feels for jewish life in the in the old world in, in eastern europe and eastern europe is filtered through the depiction of belonging for the land of Israel. Everybody's always standing on one shore, maybe looking in a in a different direction or, or having reached a destination, looking over their shoulder at what, what was left behind.
0: Uh, a psychologist in listening or reading about Agnon's uh, happy childhood and deep attachment to his father uh, might speculate that 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 attachment is also a reflection, or is later reflected in the spirituality uh, that permeates so much of Agnon's writings. Um, in the book we're discussing, there's a chapter by Moshe Simkovich uh, on uh, Agnon's story called "The Covenant of Love," <clears throat> and if you recall, it's a conversation among three elderly immigrants to Israel who are sitting on the beach at sunset, talking, complaining... On the beach in
1: Jaffa, on the beach in, Yaffo, in, that's in Jaffa. Right. yeah,
0: right. Uh, and, and they're complaining, as immigrants everywhere do, uh, about how their new home fails to measure up against the old country. Uh, tell us about the metaphor of light that's used by the speakers and how the... Um, different points of view are resolved,
1: right? So, so that story, the the covenant of love in, in Hebrew, it's called Brit Ahava. It's a very, very short story, uh, which is available in. Uh, it's a ve- the story itself is available in in English translation, of course, in a volume that uh, we put out with the Toby Press called Forevermore and Other Stories. And as you said, it's these three European Jews who have come late in life to the land of Israel, and they're sitting in Jaffa. And they're exploring this, where they're looking at the setting of the sun, and that gets us to the, to the, um, you know, to this theme of of light. But to discuss the theme of light, of course, you're also discussing the theme of, implicitly, the theme of, of darkness. And uh, actually, Moshe Simkovich in this, um, in this uh, essay, which I think is a very good example of unpacking Agnon's use of the primary sources. Primary sources in the Bible, in the Talmud, in interpretation of, of the Bible. And very often Agnon will quote a, a source, a, a, a verse in a verse in the Bible. And the knowledgeable reader, even if they're reading in translation, uh, will identify what Agnon is, is playing off of. In other words, it's not a quote in the mouth of the character who himself is quoting the Bible. It's just kind of intertextually woven in to the to the story, but even when we identify that source, what's required to really unpack the symbol is usually um, is usually our ability to know how the the reception history of that source how that source was interpreted and read through the eyes of the midrash and through the eyes of the, the biblical interpreters of the medieval period. Here, uh, Simcovich is, is, is doing that uh, through the prism of the commentary of Rashi on certain verses. But what's significant in this story is that the, the three of them arrive in, in Yafo, and to sit on the beach of Yafo looking at the sunset, of course, means looking west, looking back to Europe. And an inversion of Judah Halevi's well-known phrase that, that I am at the furthest reaches of the West, but my heart is in the East. Libi Mizrah, he says, while standing in Spain, looking and longing eastward for, for Zion. Here are three olim who've achieved the, the goal of, of coming and settling in the land of Israel, are, are looking out over the Western horizon. At the end of the day and they're wondering about the gap between what israel was idealized and what it actually is now that they've gotten here and that's a theme that also runs throughout agnon's work it it's a theme that's very prominent in agnon's great epic novel tmol Shil or in english only yesterday which um is a is a central focus of uh, of many of the essays in in our collection Shal Shom is a is a novel uh, told through the prism of the protagonist uh, a young man named Yitzhak Kumer who arrives he, he's not autobiographical but his life overlaps with the stations in Agnon's life he's born in Buchach the same time as Agnon, he comes on Aliyah. The same time that Agnon had arrived uh, in 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 1908, the beginning of the of the 20th century, during this wave of immigration called the Second Aliyah, he settles first in Jaffa and then in Jerusalem, and he's torn between the secular modern life of Jaffa and the traditional religious Orthodox life of Jerusalem in that period between the new settlement and the, and the old. And, uh, that theme of Israel as we always imagined it would be, you know, cause for 2000 years, Jews sat in the diaspora and they three times a day, they would face, uh, face East, uh, and they would pray to Jerusalem. They would long for Jerusalem, but Jerusalem existed more as a kind of abstraction as a p- point of desire than as an actual physical city in the minds and hearts and imaginations of diaspora Jewry, wherever they, wherever they were. But when you, those that actually arrived here in the 19th and 20th century, well, you know, uh, aspiration and abstraction and desire and idealization crashes up on the hard rocks of reality. Uh, life was very, very, very difficult. And, uh, you know, I, I dare say that, you know, even now in the in the early 21st century, I came on Israel I came on Aliyah, uh, you know about 30 years ago in the mid-90s. Uh, you know, I think most Olim would, uh, would describe a similar type of um, crashing up against reality. even those of us that have had very happy and successful lives. Uh, the immigrant experience is a difficult one, no matter how much it's padded. And that's depicted in in Agnon, but through Agnon, it's depicted through an additional layer of, well, what do you do when you take with you in your suitcase, uh, you know, on the boat, you know, arriving on the shores of Yafo in 1908, in your suitcase are all of those desires and expectations and idealizations of this place. And how do you make sense of it in the actual real physical world? The difference between the physical and the spiritual, the difference between the the ideal, uh, or the, the real and the, and the ideal. Uh, so I think in this question of light, you know, it's not so clear. Light casts shadow and light is the, is the mirror side of the the other side of the coin of, of darkness. And, you know, this gap between the ideal and the real are things that they're, that they're exploring. Uh, although that story, the story that Simcovich explores ends on a kind of positive note. It ends on a kind of optimistic note that, uh, maybe those idealizations uh, the folklore we have to outgrow that in order to actualize the covenant of love the brit ahava which god has has formed with this particular land but like any covenant it's two-sided and maybe what he's saying there and in, and in other stories is that if the land of israel and this, this story is written in 1925, long before the establishment of the state. But if the land of Israel and later the state of Israel is not what we imagined it to be in our folklorish idealization, maybe that's on us. Maybe we have to work to make it what we imagined it is or could be.
0: One of the chapters that I found very interesting was your conversation with Professor Avraham Holtz. Uh, You and he and the audience shared an amusing back and forth about the different Hebrew accents of Jews from different countries. And the conversation reminded me of, of Zionism's extraordinary project of taking an ancient language, which was used for sacred purposes only, and making it a language for everyday conversation and secular literature. Tell us about the role Agnon played in that transition.
1: I will, but before I do, since you've mentioned Professor Holtz, uh, I'll just mention that uh, you know, to my mind, this is you know, this was the the, the most special part of the the conference in the book. Uh, uh, Avram is a is a I'll I'll call him a dear friend, um, but he is of course our our great teacher. You know, he's one of the the leading. I call him the dean of Agnon scholarship. Uh, at this point, um, his his most significant contribution so far is uh, an annotated edition of Agnon's novel, Hachnasat Kala. In English, it's called The Bridal Canopy, which is laid out and uh, almost like a page of Talmud with the prime text in the middle and copious Commentary and illustrations and source work and and indexes and uh, appendixes and etc. which unpacks every word, not even every line, every word of of Agnon's text. And for many years, for many decades now, he's been at work on a companion volume of Agnon's great novel of life in the land of Israel, Tumultul Shom, which we mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, and we hope that uh, he will succeed in, in completing that work, which will be a phenomenally important contribution to Agnon scholarship, to the scholarship of, of Hebrew literature and of, of Jewish learning uh, in general. So the conversation that I had with him at the conference, which was then edited into the essay in the book, uh, explores his work as the great commentator and annotator uh, of of Agnon's uh, of Agnon's work, particularly here on a novel focused on the reality of life in the land of Israel, but in terms of your question about Hebrew, it's a it's a very important one, and uh, we don't have time to fully uh, discuss it here, but suffice to say that you know when when Hebrew was being you know what colloquially is called revived uh, at the beginning of the twentieth century, uh, there were debates about how to go about doing that. How do you take a language that, you know, was the language of a people, but for 2,000 years, if not dead, then at least, you know, in something of a coma? You know, Agnon and Chaim Nachman Bialik, the great national poet, they looked with a jaundiced eye at this idea that Hebrew was revived. And that Eliezer ben Yehuda, who was the, you know, the hero of the story of the revival of the Hebrew language, you know, had kind of done it single-handedly. Not just because there were egos involved, clearly there were, but um, in order for something to be revived, it has to first be dead. And Hebrew was never dead. Hebrew was always the language of prayer it was always the language of scholarship. It was always the second language of Jews everywhere. Asterisk in the conversation. Yes, yes, we acknowledge not everyone. Not everyone was learned. Not everyone was was literate. Uh, women, in particular, uh, were probably not uh, literate and fluent in, in Hebrew in any way near the same, uh, same statistics as, as men and certainly not as learned men. And of course, there were precious few learned, learned women throughout much of, that, much of that history. But you understand what I mean by Hebrew was the second language of Jews everywhere. So that if a Jew from Morocco and a Jew from, from, uh, from Germany and a Jew from, from uh, the Russian Pale of Settlement would meet on the streets of Vienna they had a common language, and that was Hebrew. So Agnon didn't think that Hebrew needed to be revived. It needed to be reawoken, or in, in Amos Oz's uh, felicitous phrase, like sleeping beauty. Hebrew was like sleeping beauty, which needed to be reawoken with the, the poet or the author's, the author's uh, kiss. Uh, and the question then becomes, well, which Hebrew are we reawakening? how should the new language be reconstituted how should it be brought pulled into, into modernity how could it be turned how can the language of, of of the synagogue and the study hall be turned into a language of of modern literature to say nothing of the language of the the supermarket and the, the auto garage and the uh, and the, the bus stop and this was something about which there were ferocious debates uh, throughout uh, you know much of that period particularly in that period of the the second aliyah that that uh, decade in which agnon first arrives in the in the land of israel that's when the most progress was made on these on these fronts and agnon really believed that modern hebrew should emanate out of the sources of jewish tradition principally the rabbinic literature so that today people who read agnon you know, there's this bad. It's it's a it's a terrible mistake. Uh, what you might hear, uh, you know, particularly schoolchildren who might be forced some Agnon uh, on the on the diet that's fed to them as part of the the school curriculum. Uh, that oh, you can't read Agnon. It's written in. They don't even know enough to know which layer of Hebrew it's written in. But if they did, they would know that it's written with a very heavy dose of rabbinic Hebrew um, put onto put onto onto uh, on top of it it's not true that contemporary israelis can't read agnon any any contemporary israeli can re- open agnon and 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 read him and if they come across a concept or a word or a or a rabbinic phrase or a talmudic idiom that's unfamiliar to them well you know we're all carrying the collected wisdom of civilization in our pockets and we can quickly you know google something to to find out uh in the same way uh, by the way that that, you know, it's a mistake to think that that uh, in the United States or in England, students or adults can't read Shakespeare. Shakespeare can be read and enjoyed by any somewhat intelligent reader, even though sometimes you need help getting over phrases and words. As a matter of fact, this, this past summer, we took our, our young children, we, took, we have a, 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 our younger children are 14 and 10, then they were 13 and 9. We took them to see Shakespeare in the Park here in Jerusalem. There's a very, very good amateur uh, uh, production every summer of Shakespeare in the Park. And it's amazing how much they were able to enjoy it and how much of it they, they understood. And if that's true for Shakespeare, it's true even more so for, for Agnon. But there's no doubt that his Hebrew, the Hebrew of, of Agnon, is a, written in a, in a high register. And it's not necessarily exactly contemporary spoken Hebrew. It actually reminds me, if we have time,'ll I'll take us on a short detour, but I think you'll you'll understand its value. Uh, in Greece, in modern Greece, uh, as part of Greek nationalism and the revival of the Greek language as a modern language, there are some very many parallels. So what happened when when Greece regained national sovereignty in the 19th century they had similar debates about what 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 kind of Greek should we be should we be speaking the distance between contemporary Greek and Homer is light years compared to the distance between contemporary Hebrew and rabbinic Hebrew and even contemporary Hebrew and biblical Hebrew so they created two forms of contemporary Greek. There was a kind of everyday Greek that you hear people speak in schools and in, and in shops and on the bus and in taxicabs, And then there was what they call a purified Greek, Greek in a very high register. Now this is not classic Greek. It's a kind of imagined form of what Greek would sound like if it, if it emanated directly out of classical Greek. To a certain degree, and, and for many years in, in 20th century Greece, it was the official language. If you were a lawyer and you were arguing a case in court, if you were filing legal papers or some, doing something at a government office, business had to be conducted in high Greek. The the nightly news was read in high Greek on the on the national station. The same way that here in Israel, the news on the radio was once read in a way that kind of it was a, a higher register of Hebrew, besides the fact that in order to be a radio announcer in Israel, you had to be able to have Perfect diction in the pronunciation of your modern Hebrew, and certainly without a without a whiff of any kind of Yiddishism or uh, uh, you know European type uh, accent. Agnon is doing something similar. He's imagining what Hebrew would be like as a modern language, without the historic catastrophe of which he spoke in Stockholm in 1966 how a modern language might have evolved directly from the sources of rabbinic literature without taking that detour, the the tragic detours of Jewish history uh, that uh, that we had to suffer. And that's what kind of sets his Hebrew somewhat apart. This was a bit of a, of a digression, but I think it's an interesting one, or at least I think it's interesting. And it says something about what Agnonian Hebrew is, uh, but I don't want to overstate it, because it's used unfortunately as an excuse for people to feel something of a, a distance from Agnon, when, with a little, with a little, with a little effort, there is no native Hebrew speaker that can't read and understand and enjoy Agnon's writings.
0: That's really interesting, and you mentioned uh, women's uh, relatively lower. Levels of education and uh, familiarity with Hebrew in uh, the times of Agnon's childhood. Uh, one of his famous novellas, uh, Tehila, uh, is centers on a woman and her spirituality,
1: and and these questions of uh, disparate educational opportunities, which Absolutely. which serves as part of the tragedy. In that novella, for what happens to the protagonist's daughter,
0: and do you think it has particular insight into female spirituality? I think so. It's interesting.
1: Agnon uh, Agnon's <laughs> depiction of women and female characters is a very interesting subject. Um, it, it wasn't. It wasn't the subject of our book, although there's one particular essay. Uh, by, uh, professor Wendy Zeiler of New York, uh, specifically on this, on this, uh, subject and, and on, uh, on, uh, this character of Tehila, and her parallels in other Hebrew and Yiddish literature, particularly by the, by the, uh, by the author Zvora Baron. Uh, uh and I think Wendy uncovers something actually quite brand, ground, groundbreaking, uh, in, in, in her essay about the sources and influences on, uh, on Tehillah. Um but Agnon created many, many remarkable female characters in his writing. Um, very often, the male protagonists are very passive. They're often acted upon. Um, they're often... Uh, you know, either the Luftmensch or the one who's disconnected. In Hebrew literature, it's called the Talush, the someone who kind of finds himself disconnected, doesn't fit in, is, is out of time, is out of place, is trying to struggle to find himself. But the women, the female characters, very often are dominant. Sometimes they're domineering, uh, particularly the character of the mother in a few in a few stories. And they're often the ones that take charge, and they're often the ones that move the plot. Um, uh, so, so I think there's something interesting to be said there. In in Tehillah, of course, the the very clear message is that part of the tragedy that befalls there's a terribly tragic, it's a tragic story. You know, on on the scale of of, of we mentioned Greek a moment ago, of, of Greek tragedy, of what's what befalls that righteous woman, the, the character, the title character. But, um, but there's no doubt that she's saying something about, about the unequal opportunities that were afforded women and how they were drawn away to sometimes to Christianity, sometimes to leaving the faith in, in other ways, sometimes to running away from home in order to explore other opportunities, opportunities for love, opportunities for education, professional opportunities that were open to beginning to be open to women uh, outside of the of the Jewish world, and then later, of course, these things uh, these things were were brought home inside the the Jewish world. Uh,
0: Finally, Jeffrey, uh, after spending so many years immersed in his work and then editing the 15 volume series of uh, annotated translation you have an intimate knowledge of Agnon so tell us in your view what is his unique quality the genius that makes him a giant of israeli literature <laughs>
1: you've buried the lead rene that's the uh, that's the great question um <laughs> You know, look. Every every reader has the writers that resonate for them. Every reader has, you know, the bookshelf that they turn to, you know, for insight, for inspiration, for entertainment. Um, you know, for me, you know, for many years, that's been that's been Agnon. It, it really is a canon of works that you go back and you you find new things in, in the in the forward to one of the novels uh, that we that we put out. I wrote a, uh, an introduction, a preface, uh, where I described my history with this particular novel, how I first encountered it as a young man in my 20s. And then I reread it again in my 30s. And then I had reread it again on the work for that book at that point in my 40s. Um, and I was amazed that it was constantly, every time I came back to it, it was a different book. But of course, the book is the same. The reader has changed Um, And there are certain, you know, that's maybe that's the definition of what makes a classic, a book that sustains ongoing engagement. And every time you come back to it, you're going to see something new in it because it's a reflection. It can be used as a lens back onto yourself. Agnon famously once said that any book not worth reading twice probably wasn't worth reading the first time and and that's true very often in agno that's very that's true not only to come back to it five or ten years later but to come back to it five minutes five minutes later you finish reading it and and you discover exactly how unreliable that narrator was and how many things you took for granted and only when you get to the end do you discover uh you know what what the theme of this work really is and then you're you're inspired to go back and start from the beginning in order to take those insights and and read it again yeah, that's true for all classic literature but i think that for you know agnon has wide appeal in my role at the agnon house i receive i receive uh mails and phone calls and contacts from people all around the world uh, non-jewish readers in you wouldn't believe in china in korea in saudi arabia um where people encounter Agnon very often in the context of world literature courses or uh, university lecturers who, you know, because the curriculum contains him, they have to learn something about him and they have to teach him and how much he resonates in other cultures. He's been translated to all world languages, but certainly for those of us that are engaged with Jewish life and Jewish learning and Jewish, Jewish literature, uh, you know, he, he's really exploring the themes that are central to our existence. And he's doing it through... The raw material he has absorbed. Those of you that will come and visit us at the Agnon House in Jerusalem will see his vast library of many thousands, nine, ten thousand volumes of the classics of of Jewish literature, uh, spanning all time. We have some very rare books. The oldest book in our collection is a, is a volume of medieval Jewish philosophy published in 1544. But of course, we have the classics of of, of Jewish life and literature, uh, not not published, but going back, uh, going back to, to, to Moses on the mountain. And a part of Agnon's accomplishment was to take the entirety of the Jewish canon and to distill it down and to cast it into the mold of modern literature. And that's something very creative. And particularly for people that are engaged with classic Jewish sources to see how he uses uh, sometimes, ironically, um, those sources to craft a modern literature is a is a very remarkable f- to witness a very remarkable feat of of creativity of Jewish creativity of authentic Jewish creativity. Uh, that's why I called it midrashic or pseudo midrashic because it's one text engaging with those that came before him. So, in in that regard, he's he's uh, he's worthy of our attention. But the works themselves, even reading in translation, you know, very often Israelis ask me, natural Israeli chauvinism, how could people possibly read Agnon in, in, in English? And I said, well, how, do, how did we, in, a, in, in the United States, how did we read Tolstoy in English? How do we read Cervantes in English? How do we read any great classic in translation? Right? Those judges in Stockholm and admittedly there are all types of factors that go into awarding uh, a Nobel to anyone and to anyone literature and but those judges in Stockholm all read Agnon in translation and they understood this is a world class author who's dealing both with a very high level of artistry and a very high level of insight to the human condition and and you know for that alone he's 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 worth uh, he's worth reading and coming back to again and again and again.
0: Well, he certainly is. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Jeffrey. And lots of good luck with your ongoing work. Thank you. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. To hear more conversations like this one, subscribe to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform.